the story of so-called Doubting Thomas in John chapter 20 is well known, and uh, it rehearses for us the uneasy relationship between sight and faith. And it's about sight and faith that I'd like to speak tonight. Uh, when I was in high school, it was brought home to me by a, a comedy routine by George Carlin. Uh, he, he passed away a few years ago, but he was a, an atheist, and, uh, and he was a fairly crass comedian, but pretty funny. And uh, he once quipped that while he was a skeptic regarding the existence of God, he did, in fact, both worship and pray. He worshipped and prayed to Joe Pesci. Uh, Joe Pesci, as you may remember, is an Italian actor who often plays a mobster in movies. So Carlin says, and I quote, Why do I worship Joe Pesci? Well, first of all, I can see Joe Pesci. Secondly, Joe Pesci looks like a guy who can get things done. (laughs) Now, when I said this this morning, nobody laughed. I'm beginning to think students don't know who Joe Pesci is, and it makes me want to cry. Uh, Anyway. But uh, George Carlin's on to something because he connects the ideas of sight and faith. He thinks that they depend on one another, that you can't believe what you don't see. And we often think this way, too. We think of it, we think this way because of promises that have been offered to us, promises of things that have not been delivered, and we get cynical. You know, when somebody says, you know, I, re- I promise that we're going to get engaged. I'm saving up money. I'm saving up, you're going to see that ring one of these days, you know, and then two years goes by and you're thinking, yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, Or somebody tells you, this person who's really hurting you in your life, and they promise you um, that they're going to drink less and they won't act out as much anymore. And they say that, but it never stops. Uh, And after, after these type of events, we tend to say, at least to ourselves, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. And that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to think that way and even to live that way. Um, And yet, there's something that Christ wants from us here. He wants a a faith that is not dependent upon at least a certain kind of evidence. So I want to talk about sight and faith. Uh, This language, uh, uh, the language of this text is rich uh, with seeing, with sight. I want to read this text to you, at least a portion of it, and so we can highlight that language. The other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place, the Greek is thrust, my hand into his side, I will never believe. Then later, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have not seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. Seeing and sight in this passage uh, tends to mean something like evidence, and that is what Thomas really wanted. He, he wanted and felt that he needed evidence to really affirm what the other disciples were affirming. Uh, we, we don't know a lot about the disciples, you know. The gospel narratives don't tell us a great deal about them, with, with some exceptions, Peter, John, James. Thomas is one of those little-known apostles, but we have two quotations from him that are rather telling. And from these two quotations, we can glean that Thomas is a pragmatist, that is a realist, and he's a committed man. 
Um, whenever Jesus is going into Jerusalem, that city that tends to create martyrs, uh, all the other disciples are starry-eyed and expectant, except Thomas, who says to his companions, lowering their morale, no doubt, let us go with him and die. He knows what's going to happen and is willing to go the distance. Later, that pragmatism shows up as he tries to break through Jesus' metaphorical discussion at the Last Supper. John records this kind of, uh, uh, it's a grand symphony of theology as Jesus is presenting what's going to happen to him at the cross and where and how he is going on to prepare a place for us. And he says to his disciples, using highfalutin metaphorical language, you know where I am going. And Thomas, breaking through, uh, says, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? To which Jesus retorts, again, metaphysically and, and imaginatively, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I don't know if that really worked well with Thomas, but he was this man who was very committed to the cause and pragmatic in his thinking, and you know people like this. Every time we have a vestry election, I want to make sure there's at least like two people that are business savvy and care about numbers. They, we need that, right, Jake? We need that on the vestry um, because it, it helps to ground us. It's very helpful to have pragmatists in your life. Can you imagine like working without a treasurer on a committee? I mean, you need people that have gifts like this. And this is the kind of man he was. The, but the problem was, at least as, at least as I'm understanding the, the text and trajectory of the gospel, is that um, the travesty of Good Friday for Thomas was not only the end of Jesus Christ, but the end of Thomas's faith in Jesus Christ. It just couldn't be true. Uh, after this horror, after this horrific abortion of a, of a life that was set on a track for greatness, it, it couldn't get better. It couldn't be healed. You can't fix that. And so it destroyed him inside. It destroyed his faith. Now, on the one hand, a doubting disciple is not a rare animal in the Scriptures. Uh, in fact, the, the New Testament is oddly clear that all of the disciples doubted the resurrection. Uh, in Luke chapter 24, the women see the risen Jesus, go to tell the apostles, and the apostles, what, what's recorded about them is that the women's, were, the, women's, the, the women's words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Okay. Uh, now, I used to say, well, see, Thomas is no worse than they are. He doesn't believe, they don't believe. You know, he just didn't have the advantage of seeing Jesus when they saw him. Um, that isn't really true, though. Uh, in fact, the text is oddly clear that while all of the disciples had disbelief, that disbelief was cured when they saw Jesus. Thomas's reaction to the resurrection rumors are far more rigid and stark. Notice Thomas doesn't have doubts, questions, suspicions. He doesn't want to research the resurrection to see whether or not the rumors are idle tales or they have veracity. No, Thomas stopped believing. He stopped believing. Uh, in fact, he offers not just a no to the message of resurrection, he says, never. Unless I'm given concrete proof, touchable, tangible proof, I will never believe. Never. And um, he wants more. 
Thomas wants more than the other disciples had. You see, they had sight. Thomas is saying, even if I experience the same thing you all experienced, I won't believe it. I need, to, I need more than just seeing. I don't want this to be a mirage. I want to touch this man. And not only do I want to touch him, I want to touch scarred flesh. I want to make sure that this is really the same Jesus who was crucified. Thomas, I think, here teaches us something about the nature of skepticism itself. A skepticism, while at times virtuous, if you weren't skeptical, you would respond to every uh, spam email that you get demanding money uh, from a Nigerian prince. Uh, so skepticism can be helpful. Skepticism can be especially helpful in the realm of religion because there are a lot of charlatans out there. And yet at the same time, skepticism is a very hungry beast that is never satisfied. It is almost always insatiable. And the more you feed it, the more it wants. Uh, Thomas is not easily satisfied here. He reminds me of Paul Van Buren, uh, who was in a, a debate at uh, University of Pennsylvania with a Roman Catholic priest over the existence of God. Paul Van Buren was an Episcopal minister who didn't believe in God. Um, uh, he, really, I mean, he was part of a movement called Death of God Theology uh, from the 1970s. And he, um, and he was debating uh, this Catholic priest over the matter and was taunting the priest at one point, saying, look, if you really believe this, how about we go down to Love Park, which is at the center of the city of Philadelphia? We'll go there right now, you and me. Uh, you can build an altar, just like Elijah. Build an altar. And when you're done building the altar, you call down fire from heaven. We'll gather a crowd around to witness the miracle, the spectacle, mocking the Catholic priest. Go do it. Call down fire from heaven. See what happens. And the priest, without missing a beat, retorted by saying, okay, what if we do? What if we do go down to Love Park and build a altar, and, and I pray, and then fire comes down and consumes the altar. What, what would happen then? Van Buren paused and saith, uh, well, I suppose I would have to look for an alternative explanation. <laughs> All that's to say is that uh, uh, skepticism, even, even when it's met on its own terms, is not often satisfied. There's something within us that um, you see, skepticism when it comes to God is not only about uh, is not only about intellectual puzzle pieces that don't fit together. It's a complicated animal, and part of skepticism is fear. It's fear to trust, because if I trust and I'm wrong, I can be made to look foolish, like a simpleton, like a sucker, and I'd much rather not trust anything, and backpedal out of all commitments so that I don't have to appear uh, that way. And so Thomas is saying, no, even if I have your experience, I won't believe in it. Seeing is not good enough for me. So there's the sight issue. Thomas wants more than sight. And yet, there is a shift in the text that moves into faith. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Two things. First, Jesus does not abandon Thomas in his doubt, nor does Jesus approach Thomas with hostility. Oddly enough, the gracious Messiah... Uh, comes to Thomas and meets Thomas's crazy demands. Not only does he um, show himself to Thomas, he says, 
I'm giving you what you want. I'm right here. Feel the wounds. But notice, this is the second point, the text doesn't say that Thomas actually did what he so stentoriously demanded earlier. The text doesn't say that Thomas thrust his hand into the side and pressed his thumb into the nail holes. It doesn't say that. It seems as if Thomas simply sees Jesus. And what he previously regarded as imperfect evidence, that is, sight, was now, strangely, enough. Enough for him. And then the unimaginable thing happens, an exclamatory statement from the lips of a skeptic, my Lord and my God. This is, without a doubt, the boldest, most radical statement of faith found in the four Gospels, said from the lips of a Richard Dawkins-esque character. Um, St. Thomas the Doubter equates Jesus Christ with Yahweh unequivocally and clearly. He is saying of Jesus, you are in fact Lord and God. Now, Jesus was given many favorable titles in the Gospels in the New Testament, Son of God, Son of David, Master, Rabbi, Lord, Christ, King of the Jews, but no crowd, no disciple, not even Jesus Christ himself said the words, my Lord and my God, in reference uh, to this, um, this great man. Uh, Thomas, and only Thomas, does this. So I suggest we at this church start a re-imaging campaign for this poor, beleaguered, marred saint of the church. I say we rename Doubting Thomas uh, as St. Thomas the Confessor. It's a good name, I think. Um, This man uh, makes this bold, audacious claim. And the only time we come close to this claim in the Gospel of John, other than the I Am sayings, which are enigmatic, is the prologue of John's Gospel, where the author, not a character in the story, but the author tells us, the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, Thomas was deeply altered by this experience, and we have pretty good evidence to believe that he made it. He was so compelled by the resurrection of Jesus that he makes it all the way to India. He goes uh, farther than any other disciple and starts a community of Christians there that still exists to this day. They claim to have his body in the altar of St. Thomas Church. Maybe. Uh, But he was a changed man after this event. And so we have something about sight and something about faith. And what does this have to do with us tonight? That is, those of us who don't have the evidence shown to Thomas, who don't have a Christ who appears to us physically and offers his his um, wounds to us. Um, it's in a very important idea, you know, faith. How do, what, how do we have faith in light of the lack of that um, immediate evidence? It's a critical question in some ways because we believe that faith is critical in Christianity. In fact, you're justified by it. That is, you're declared righteous because of your trust in Christ. Moreover, God's favor is uniquely assigned in this text to those of us who have not seen and yet have believed. And so I want to offer three words for us to consider if we ever in life seem to lose our faith or if we ever live with a gut full of doubt. And these these three words are exposure, companionship, and core. So first, exposure. Uh, Doubt is something that grows in the dark. 
I think it's far better to express doubt rather than hide it, struggling with it alone. Uh, um, so some people are very skeptical, you know, about the about the inspiration of like the Bible. And some are skeptical about providence. You know, is somebody really behind the wheel of history, or at least the wheel of my personal history? <laughs> if so, have they had a few too many? Uh, some people are skeptical about the virgin birth and the miracle claims of Scripture. Some are, are skeptical that Jesus is really the only sure and certain way to know God. Uh, some are skeptical about our own conversion experience. Was I just riding this wave of emotional hype and I got caught up in the moment? Well, exposing our doubts can help us in two ways. First, it, it can show us, I really believe this, that Jesus Christ holds up very well to scrutiny. Second, it teaches us that Jesus Christ does not run from skeptics, but rather toward them. He is the good shepherd who comes and finds us even when, we're, even when we are in the uh, despondency of doubt. So exposure, you don't have to hide it. Also companionship. Notice Thomas, though entirely skeptical, uh, did not Yoko himself out of the band. <laughs> that was a Beatles reference, friends. Uh, he, um, he, he's staying with the apostles. Did you notice that? Even when he didn't believe. And so don't deal with doubt alone in a mental cave. Um, doubts can become exaggerated in the echo chamber of, a, of the isolated mind, and they can start to take over. If you've got questions, talk to fellow travelers who are kind and learned and have wrestled through things, because there really is help to be found. Um, lastly, core. Um, I have a friend who had, a, um, after the loss of two major jobs, had a pretty serious crisis of faith, and he asked a British theologian friend, what should I do? I mean, I don't even know how to begin thinking about God anymore in light of um, these difficulties. And this friend said in beautifully accented English, well, perhaps you should just stick with the core. And he said, oh, okay, what's the core? And he said that God is mercy, and God is love, and God is pity, and God is forgiveness. And we know that because of the hard wood of the cross. We know that because Jesus died not only for our moral failings, but for our failures in belief, for our doubts. Oh. The scriptures are a witness for us. They are a blood-bought witness. Um, they represent blood-bought witnesses of the risen Christ. And those witnesses testify to this same core um, and the core is what matters where faith is concerned. We can get lost, you know, in the woods of theology, failing to see what the center is. Uh, D.A. Carson told this uh, imaginative story of the Passover in which uh, there were two women talking about the nature of what they were asked to do by God. You remember the story how they were supposed to take a lamb and kill the lamb and then take the blood and smear it uh, on the doorframe of the house. So that, um, so that the plague would pass by. And he says these two women were having a discussion, and one said, you know, God's always come through for us, always. And uh, so I'm going to obediently kill this lamb and smear the blood on the door, and I know that we'll be saved. I know we'll be fine. And the other woman responded, are you kidding me? I don't know about this. It seems like a very strange ritual, maybe a little superstitious, 
a little ridiculous. It doesn't make sense to me because medicinally, I'm not sure how like blood is going to save us from a plague. I don't, I don't think that's in any book that was ever written. And I'm kind of afraid it won't work, but, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Even though I have questions about it, I'm going to do it. And Carson then asked, so which one was saved? Well, they were both saved. They were both saved. Because it isn't about the strength of one's faith. It's about the blood. It's not about the strength of one's faith. It's about the solid ground upon which faith rests. Whether that faith is robust or fledgling. Um, Remember Jesus said, faith the size of a mustard seed was enough to move a mountain. I'll close with this story. A friend, um, he was a fellow seminarian with me. He was studying to be a priest. But in seminary, he lost his faith for a variety of reasons, and he dropped out never to come back. And I asked uh, if anything about Jesus Christ still appealed to him, even after his faith was supposedly gone. And in response, he uh, sent to me, mailed to me, a poem by William Cooper, William Cooper was a, uh, an English hymn, hymn writer and a student of John Newton. He, was, he suffered uh, from mental illness, uh, very significant mental illness. Um, but my friend, I think, identified with the poet because Cooper also experienced real seasons of very dark doubt, particularly doubt that God would ever, could ever love or save a weak and doubt-filled person like himself. Um, In a place of doubt and despair, uh, Cooper wrote a poem for his dying friend who he imagined would go to heaven to be with God as surely as he himself, Cooper, with all his doubts, would surely suffer in hell. And uh, Cooper wrote to his friend, Such Jesus is, and such his grace. Oh, may he shine on you and tell him, when you see his face, that I long to see him too. See, to my despondent friend who clung to this sorrowful little poem after he gave it to me, and I could see that he was very moved by it, I said to him, may it be credited to you as righteousness. Faith is a funny thing. I think sometimes even people that say that they don't have any faith and are pushing against it with all their might, arguing against it ferociously, there's got to be something there. Or else why would they argue so strenuously against something that they're pretending not to believe in, claiming not to believe in? It's a mysterious thing. Um, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad, friends, that the, at the end of all things... Um, faith will find itself fulfilled in materiality. Or to quote the Christian hymn, faith shall be sight. There will be a day when it won't only be faith, trust, it will be sight. We will see. You will see and I will see as we have never seen before. And then, as uh, Tolkien writes, all will turn to silver glass and we will see white shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise.
Blessed are those who have not yet seen, but still believe. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.